0: Welcome to episode 165 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast Case Reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent and profiler Ken Lanning who served in the FBI for more than 30 years. For 20 years of his bureau career, he was assigned to the Behavioral Science Unit, now known as the Behavioral Analysis Unit, as a profiler specializing in the study of the sexual victimization of children. In this episode, Ken reviews the controversial topics of satanic ritual child abuse, Recovered, Repressed Memory, and the Suggestibility of Children. His work in this area and the ramifications of confirmation bias has divided and polarized many child advocates, the media, and the American public. Ken Lanning is a founding member of the Board of Directors of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, He has testified many times as an expert witness in state and federal court and has consulted on thousands of cases involving deviant sexual behavior, the sexual victimization of children, missing and exploited children, and the use of computers and the internet to facilitate the sexual exploitation of children. Ken Lanning is the 2009 recipient of the Outstanding Service Award for Lifetime Achievements from the National Children's Advocacy Center. He has lectured before and trained tens of thousands of law enforcement officers, prosecutors, social workers, mental health and medical personnel, judges, and other professionals. Ken Lanning is currently a consultant in the area of crimes against children, and the author of Love, Bombs, and Molesters, an FBI agent's journey, the story of his life leading up to his assignment to the BSU, and his research involving the sexual victimization of children, satanic ritual abuse, and confirmation bias. This is another long episode, but I hope you listen to the very end. Ken Lanning does such a great job telling us about the satanic ritual abuse of children, this phenomenon that occurred, explaining to us what confirmation bias is, and relating it all to fake news and the political outrage of today. It is an absolutely fascinating interview that I am so excited to share with you. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that I sent out my May Reader Team email. So please check your inbox. And if it's not there, (laughs) yeah, check your spam filter. And if you find it in the spam filter, dig it out and send me an email so that your email provider knows that you want to hear from me. This month, I review The Americans, one of the many TV shows and movies that I review in my book, Myths and Misconceptions, A Manual for Armchair Detectives. I am so excited about Myths and Misconceptions. In each chapter, I discuss one of my top 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and provide a reality check while breaking down the facts. Throughout the book, I use quotes and snippets from some of the retired agents about how the real FBI works. I also review popular films and fiction featuring FBI agent characters. While you're waiting for the book to be published, Why not join my reader team and get the FBI reality checklist to discover the top 20 FBI myths and misconceptions. You can join my reader team at jerrywilliams.com, or if you're listening on a podcast app that supports links, you can join in the description of this episode. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Ken Lanning. Hey, Ken, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Well, I have to tell you that I just finished reading your book this morning, and I'm so excited. I have been talking on this podcast about my desire to let the agents tell their stories, not throw any politics or any type of partisan comments in, just present the facts and let the case reviews speak for themselves. And basically what your book is about is just that. The phenomenon of today, where people are not looking at the facts, they're letting their emotions and their own desires for a certain type of truth to come through, and it—it it was just absolutely amazing. And I want to make sure that anybody who is interested in what's happening in the media and TV on social media today needs to go out and get love, bombs, and molesters, an FBI agent's journey by Kenneth V. Lannan. So how's that for an opening? Well,
1: thank you. I really appreciate that. One of the sad facts is that many people are not relying on the facts, but they think that they are. They think that what they're looking at are facts. And that's the other problem I talk about is how to assess and evaluate information. But people think it's factual, but it simply isn't. But that's the problem.
0: Now, people who have come to this particular episode because of the title are saying, you know, what, <laughs> is she talk- what is she talking about? The title of this episode says that we're going to talk about satanic ritual abuse of children. And uh, that was not a clickbait type title. You know, we are going to talk about that as it relates to this phenomenon. And I'd, I'd like to read a section out of your book that explains what this is all about. And I'm reading from page 77. It says, and and it's you speaking, I have consulted on hundreds of cases in which large numbers of individuals, victims and interveners, investigators and prosecutors, mental health professionals and the media believed something happened that did not. My experiences with these kinds of cases and what I learned profoundly changed First, my professional, and then my personal life. It eventually became the inspiration for this book.
1: Yes, I think that sums it up. What I did is when I thought about writing this book, and I thought about writing a book for a long time, most people wanted me to talk about all the high-profile cases I've been involved in involving child sexual abuse, but I didn't want to write that book. I felt they had written a lot of professional material, which is referenced in that book. I wanted to talk about something that I thought was important. And I think it's more important than ever before with what's going on, and something that would be of interest to people other than just true crime fanatics who just like to hear about true crime. Something that would tell us something that you could use in your own life to be maybe helpful. I had no delusions that I was going to drastically change this problem. It's been around for a long time, and many people are aware of it. They just think that it doesn't apply to them. But it was the inspiration for writing the book. I took this journey. And I tried to talk about that journey because I think the journey itself is important in understanding how and how to increase the likelihood that you can be an objective fact finder when it's important. Sometimes it's not important. If you're deciding whether to go to McDonald's or Burger King, what difference (laughs) does it make? But if you're going to make an important decision about switching to a different retirement plan, where to invest your money, should you get your children vaccinated, who should vote for in the election, and so on. These are important decisions that you should be trying to do some objective fact-finding, gathering information. And so I, I tried to write a book with no delusions of grandeur that hopefully would help people in that area by describing what I went through and making some general recommendations.
0: All right. But the main thing that we need to you know, stress as we begin this conversation is that you were a quote-unquote profiler in the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, our Behavioral Science Unit. I know you referred to it both ways in the book, and that you are a subject matter expert in the sexual victimization of children, and in particular, the satanic ritual abuse of children. Before you get started, though, could you read page 154, where you have crafted a precise statement that you try to use when you're telling people about the topic?
1: Yes, I've been studying human behavior for over 45 years, and this is probably the most significant thing uh, that I discovered, and I'll read the way I phrased it. Regardless of intelligence and education, and often despite common sense and evidence to the contrary, adults tend to believe what they want or need to believe. The greater the need, The greater the tendency and that's kind of what i discovered and it applies to all people in in, to varying degrees and a lot depends on the subject matter and the need to believe in one area people can be very objective in another area they can't be and that's what i discovered because these cases that i'm going to talk about is the way that i learned that lesson i had to go through this experience with a certain type of case which i studied for over 10 years And when I realized what was happening in these cases and what this was about, it just opened my eyes and I came to realize there was no reason that it didn't apply to all cases and there's no reason that it didn't apply to other areas of your life where you wanted to objectively evaluate information. And so the idea that what I found by studying these cases, that's why I'm going to tell the story of these cases and how it took me on this journey.
0: Great. I understand that social psychologists call this confirmation bias.
1: Yes. I mean, when I contacted many academic scholars, friends of mine, I talked about it. They said, well, essentially what you're talking about is generally called confirmation bias. And there have been many, many books and articles. I referenced them in my book uh, about this topic. But it just doesn't seem to really go away because it it seems to be an ingrained human characteristic. But I tried to just explain it from my perspective in a very layman's point of view, I try to avoid a lot of psychological language and so on and just try to explain it as simply as I can and to try to explain or describe my experiences and what I learned. And hopefully maybe I can
0: get a few people to maybe think about things in a different way. Yeah, you definitely got me thinking. Definitely. (laughs) All right. So why don't you start on some of the cases and, uh, you know, give us an idea of how you begin to develop your understanding of this confirmation bias?
1: What I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about, because I think that's what your program is about, is case studies. But I'm going to do a case study of not just one case, although we can talk about a few specific famous cases. But I'm going to talk about a type of case. It was my experience with hundreds of these cases to lead me to conclusions that I came to. But as we just said, these cases are interesting for more than just simply a story. I know a lot of people like to hear war stories they sometimes call them dog and pony shows whatever you want to refer to them as people like to hear about these cases but what i tried to feel that these things are important in even a broader sense and also my involvement in this stuff i'll explain as i go along because i think it's important to understand that i was a bridge between the original unit in the fbi known as the behavioral science unit and that later became the behavioral analysis unit so younger people who watch criminal minds and so on call it the behavioral analysis Older people who remember Silence of the Lambs and things like that called the Behavioral Science Unit. I was actually in both units, and I was there for so long that I kind of bridged the two and helped play a role in kind of linking the two together. But it's in that work of that unit that people don't understand because of the movies and the television programs that what I and almost all the agents in the unit did was to consult on these cases, not run out and investigate them. And people may wonder as I talk about these cases and say, gee, I didn't know that was under the investigative jurisdiction of the FBI. And for the most part, most child sexual abuse cases are not. So most of the cases I get involved in, I couldn't have investigated them even if I wanted to. What I did is consult on them. I worked with the investigators, the prosecutors, the other interveners, the social workers, the pro- all people involved in the case And tried to provide them with information, behavioral analysis, and assistance that may have helped them to become objective fact-finders. So when I talk about these cases, I'm not suggesting that I ran out to a helicopter at the FBI Academy, jumped on it, and flew around the country. What that means is that I consulted on a large number of cases that I never would have had the time to investigate, but I've never claimed that I personally investigated every one of these cases but I knew the facts. I interacted with the police. I had detailed and reliable information uh, about this situation. And the other thing I want to say before I really begin and get into the cases is that when you're involved in something like this, and I've been studying the criminal aspects of deviant sexual behavior for over 45 years, there's a joke in my family. It's not really funny that I would just joke, well, perversion is my life, you know, when I talk to my family. But when you're involved in something like this, people have asked me a thousand times two questions. Number one, how did I wind up specializing in cases in this area, sexual victimization of children? And number two, how could I have possibly lasted this long? How could I be doing this for 45 years? And sometimes when they ask me how I got involved in these cases, I'll say to them, and I hope that they'll ask a question, because I wanted to get married. And that's really what the title of my book is about, because many people say, why did you call it that? One reason I called it that is because somebody told me, if you don't have a catchy title, nobody will buy the book. But another reason is because it describes this journey that it was on. And so what does getting married have to do with this? And I said, well, how much time do you have? And so I I tell the story in the book about how one thing led to another and so
0: on. I have to ask you then, what does wanting to get married have to do with uh, becoming a a profiler specializing in the sexual uh, abuse? I'll I'll just
1: give you the short and brief version because we don't have a lot of time. But essentially, when I was graduating from college in 1966, it was the middle of the Vietnam War. And I had a student deferment because I was in college. And I knew as soon as I graduated, I was going to have to do something about the military. So I decided that I wasn't going to run away or go to graduate school. I was going to serve my country. So I decided to go into the military. And I decided if I was going to go in, I was going to go in as an officer. I would have gone as an enlisted man, but I just felt that being an officer would make it a little bit better and also because I wanted to get married. And I had a girlfriend at the time, and we were in love, and I wanted to get married. So anyway, I wound up and applied and got accepted in Naval Officer Candidate School. So I went away for four months to Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island. But when I got there, they quickly told me that if any of you have plans to get married, you better postpone them because the chances are when you leave here, you're going to be assigned to a ship, and you're going to be gone for two years. You're not going to be able to see your wife. And I now was getting depressed and thinking, oh, my God, all my plans about getting married down the drain. So I went over to this meeting where they described certain volunteer programs that you could join. And one of them was called Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Most people called bomb technician. And so basically, when they described this, I had been a competitive swimmer in high school and college and involved being a Navy diver. But the main thing was this program involved one year of training which was guaranteed shore duty. And I said, well, if I volunteer for this program, then I'll be at shore duty for a year and then I can get married and basically spend at least a year with my wife. So that's the first word, love. I was in love and I was trying to get shore duty. Probably not a good reason to volunteer to dismantle bombs, but that's what I did. And so I went through the training for a year and basically at the end of the year, I graduated. I was a bomb disposal technician and had to serve three years in the Navy, but I got selected to be an instructor at the EOD school. And there I met the FBI agents from the explosives unit at the laboratory, who gradually, when my time was up, recruited me to come into the FBI. And at that time, there were bombings all over the country, most of them perpetrated by left-wing radicals, anti-war protesters, who decided a good way to protest the war was to blow people up. But anyways, there was a lot of bombing. So at that time, they decided to have an in-service training on bombing matters. And so when they were selecting the people, it turned out it started the week I graduated from new agent training. They contacted me, and as far as I know, I was the first and only agent ever to go to in-service training before he went to the field. So I went to in-service training, I graduated on a Wednesday, became the temporary bureau supervisor on Thursday and Friday, and then I went to this in-service training on bombing matters. And so from the first day in my first office, I was involved in bombing, and part of it was to do police training, training police how to investigate these kinds of cases. And that went on for three years. I was very active. I responded to bombings, consulted on them, taught a lot of classes. But interestingly enough, as soon as the war ended, the bombings almost stopped. And All of a sudden, somebody said, well, is there anything else that you would like to teach? And I said, well, what else am I going to teach? I learned about this bombing stuff in the military. They said, here's a list of topics the Bureau will change it. So I went through the topics, as I describe in my book, and there at the bottom was these magical two words, sex crimes. And I said, you mean I can go to sex crimes? He said, yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to that one. So I went off to be, get involved in sex crimes. So I went to a two-week-in service, and I realized it was just the tip of the iceberg. There was so much more to learn. So I got involved in sex crimes as a field police instructor in the field as a part-time duty. But after a while I got tired of doing investigating cases and trying to teach police schools so I decided I wanted to be an instructor at Quantico so I got my master's degree and back to Quantico got assigned to the behavioral science unit and when I got there an associate my partner who just recently passed away Roy Hazelwood he said did you realize how important it is to have an area of specialization here in this unit if you want to control your your life and your work and I said well do you have any recommendations and he said well you're a sex crimes guy. I'm a sex crimes guy. Why don't we specialize together? And I said, okay, well, what will my specialty be? He said, why don't you focus on the child victim crimes, commonly referred to as molestation, and I'll focus on the adult victim crimes, primarily inferred to as rape. And that's kind of what we did, although there is some overlapping between the two. So that's how I specialize. And the only reason it's relevant is because I didn't get involved. That's the third word, love, bombs, now molesters but I didn't get involved in it because I thought that God had called me to save children. I didn't get involved in it because I was a victim. My wife was a victim. My mother, I have three sisters were victims. I got involved with it for almost selfish reasons. I thought it was an important topic, but it was something that I could do to have some control over my life. Now, I was, got a lot of gratification. I felt it was a very important area, but I came to it with objectivity. Therefore, those three things, that journey that I took, becomes important when I get to what, near the end of my book, where I start to talk about being an objective fact finder. What makes you a better objective fact finder? How can you minimize this confirmation bias and look at things more objectively? The other thing I tell people, I was an FBI agent, which meant I got the same paycheck every two weeks. wasn't dependent on any grant money, wasn't dependent on how many children were abused or anything like that. So if there were no more abused children, I could just move on to some other kind of investigative activity. So I felt I was in a good position to look at these things objectively. And so that's the title. It was hopefully a catchy title that would get people's attention, but it summarizes this journey that I went on.
0: Excellent. So where would you like to start as far as giving giving us an idea of the type of cases that you were working
1: I came to the Behavioral Science Unit in the, uh, the end of 1980, essentially January of 81, I reported for duty. And so in the unit, there were people who studied behavior analysis, but what people don't understand the key to the expertise and success of the Behavioral Science Unit is that agents were allowed, or sometimes the Bureau wasn't happy about it, even though we were part of the training division. We did three things. We did training. We did research. And we did case consultation. Now, that case consultation, even today, is unfortunately still referred to as profiling, but that's not the, really the best word to describe it. So we did those three things. Now, there are many people in the FBI, particularly in the training division, who didn't like the behavioral science unit wasting the training division resources and money on doing case consultation <laughs> and research. But we were able to figure it out how to do it. And eventually, the Bureau kind of accepted it and so on and it moved forward. So I'm there in the Behavioral Science Unit, and I just began to specialize in one area. At the beginning, I was, I was doing hostage negotiation and teaching this and abnormal psychology in different classes. But increasingly, I started to work with Roy Hazelwood, teaching what he called interpersonal violence, what most people would call sex crimes. And then we divided up. I began to focus on the child victim crimes. He began to focus on the adult victim crimes. And so as time goes on, as a result of teaching the FBI National Academy, doing presentations around the country, writing articles that were published in the LEB and so on, my name got out there. And one day in early 1983, and if I knew what it was all going to be, I'd probably remember the date, I'd have it engraved someplace. All I can remember was sometime in 1983. And unlike what you see on the TV programs and the movies where the agents are running all over the country doing these investigations, most of my work was done on the telephone. And so a police officer in New England calls me up one day to ask me if he could discuss a case with me and see if I could make some recommendations about how how he should respond to it. And he said he had spent hours and hours interviewing a woman who began to describe her victimization And he said, this case had many strange aspects to it that he kind of didn't understand and wasn't sure how to proceed. And so I said, okay, uh, well, tell me a little bit about the case. And he said, well, this is a woman who came to him and she described these incidents. And the first thing she said is that she only recently remembered this, that prior to this, it was a repressed memory, as it's frequently called. She was not aware of it, but she went to a therapist and the therapist helped her to recover this previously repressed memory. And her abuse, she said, started when she was very young, two or three years of age. It was perpetrated by her parents and a lot of other people. Uh, There were multiple perpetrators. And that these other people and her parents were part of a satanic cult. She and these other children were not only sexually victimized, but they were forced to participate in rituals that involved strange ceremonies. Things like drinking blood, eating flesh, and even killing people. And she said that this went on for years and years, and that in essence, she got out of it, but it was still going on. So I'm listening to all of this, and the investigator says, Have you ever heard of anything like this? And I said, Well, this is probably the worst case I've heard of in the 10 years I've been dealing with the topic, but I'm not really sure. I've heard of everything that you're describing. I just never heard of it all in one case. And I said, I don't know. So we started to talk about it. And I recommended getting as many specific details as he could, try to corroborate each thing. I also recognize that there's multiple perpetrators. There's a possibility of turning an accomplice and turning one of these people in the group. It's a common investigative technique when you're dealing with group crimes and so on. And and so I said, I couldn't tell much. I said, you know, keep me a prize and let me know and see how things turn out. So I hung up the phone thinking to myself, that's the worst case I've ever heard. And I said, I'll probably never hear about another one of those for the rest of my career. And probably within a few weeks, I got another call from a friend of mine who worked for the government, was an attorney, and said that they had a friend who was thinking about going to the police and wanted to report her victimization when she was a young child. And I said, well, what is it all about? She said, well, she's looking for your advice. And she started to describe this case. It was the same thing. Her parents, she was very young, multiple offenders, satanic cults, bizarre rituals, drinking blood, eating flesh, killing people. And I said, I already know about this case. I've already discussed it with the investigator. Said, couldn't be. Because in this case, this woman has not gone to anybody. She just told me about it because I'm her friend and she knows I work in the government. And so she said, and then as we started to go over it, we realized that there were some other differences as well. It was in a different location. This was supposedly in the Mid-Atlantic region and that she was always aware of it. She had never repressed the memory of it and so on. And I said to myself, could there possibly be two of these cases? And then in the weeks and months and years that followed, they just started pouring in. And in my position, In the behavioral science unit, from a national and international perspective, I soon became a kind of clearinghouse for these types of cases. I soon came to realize I knew more about them than anybody else simply because I was aware of more of them. Everybody else had one such case. I had 20, 30, 40 of these kinds of cases that I'll describe a little bit more here in a second. But I realized that in order to evaluate these cases, I had to learn more about Satanism than I was taught by the nuns and the priests and the brothers in my 16 years of Catholic education. I was presented a religious view of Satanism and the devil and Lucifer and what that meant in my religion. But that really was of no value to objectively investigating these cases where the focus was on criminal activity, not somebody's religious activities. But as I began to look at these cases and got involved in hundreds of them, I soon began to realize that there was something strange going on here, and that is that these people were describing these bizarre things. Now, first, let me back up for a second and say that these cases tended to uh, evolve from different scenarios, and some of them involved daycare centers, uh, the most famous of those cases, involved the McMartin Daycare Center in Manhattan Beach, California, but that's just one of many such cases and so on. But these cases, what they had in common were the victims all talked about being extremely young. They were either young at the time or they were describing something that happened a long time ago. So they would describe this abuse as having begun when they were one, two, three years of age. Also, they would talk about these organized multiple perpetrators many of them being female, which was another interesting aspect of the case. For example, in the McMartin case, I believe of the seven indicted uh, subjects, six of them were women, one of them was man. charges were dismissed against many of them before they even went to trial. Also, the children describe or the victims described fear as the primary controlling tactic. These children would describe being frightened and scared and so on and so forth, afraid of dying or loved ones dying or their pets dying. And the last characteristic that these cases had in common was that they all described what was called ritualistic, or the word that I actually prefer, is bizarre activity. Now, deviant sexual activity can be bizarre to a lot of people, but I understood all of that. But this idea of eating, drinking blood, and eating flesh, and sacrificing people, and standing in circles, and daggers, and all this stuff, this was a little bit different. So you had this bizarre activity. But the word bizarre is a very subjective word. Everybody has a different threshold of what they consider bizarre. After 45 years of dealing with this, my threshold for bizarre is different than most people's. But they would describe these kinds of things, such as chanting and robes and drugs and urine and feces and sacrificing animals and mutilation and murder and all this kind of stuff. And the scenarios from which the case grew out of was the first two that I heard of, what's called adult survivor cases. These were adults who were remembering these or recalling these memories of this now in their adulthood and describing these cases with these four characteristics from when they were young. Another type of case grew out of the daycare centers, as I mentioned. Uh, another type of case grew out of custody visitation disputes where a man and woman were now battling over visitation and custody of the child and one of them would make an allegation against the other that they were engaging in. Again, those four characteristics, multiple young victims, organized multiple offenders, fear as a controlling tactic, and bizarre or ritualistic activity. Other cases grew out of what I refer to as a family-isolated neighborhood kind of case. It would be all these people who lived on a cul-de-sac down this valley in this apartment building and so on. Many of these cases, particularly the adult survivor cases, involved individuals claiming that they were recovering what came to be referred to as a previously repressed memory. And so that they had forgotten about this for some period of time, and then this memory came back, and then there's many possible reasons to look at and evaluate as to how and why they came back. That became very important because what happened to me is I realized that these cases were horrible. This is some of the worst criminal activity I'd ever heard of. But one of the things I thought to myself is that if this is going on, there's a lot of corroborative evidence that should be around. You can't do these kinds of things and not leave corroborative evidence behind, including the fact that there's multiple perpetrators, and now you're talking about blood and rituals and murders, where are they putting the bodies and all this other kind of stuff. So I got involved in consulting hundreds of these cases, and I've told people, and I say in my book, at the beginning I believed it was probably going on. I couldn't think, why would somebody allege this if it wasn't happening? So I worked with police and investigators and everybody else to try to figure out, get to the bottom of this, find the corroborative evidence, arrest these people, and convict them. But as time went on and case after case went by, I got to the point where I just started to have some doubts and some skepticism. And all of a sudden, I just couldn't figure out why this corroborative evidence wasn't being found. And I just began to wonder if there was something else happening here that might explain why these people are alleging something that wasn't an accurate account of something that happened. And part of that was to learn more about Satanism, part of that was to learn more about repressed memory and things like that. In order for me to evaluate the cases, I had to know more about it. So I began. By default, I never wanted to be, but by default, I became the FBI expert on cults and, and uh, occult behavior and Satanism and all the rest of that stuff. And so I didn't want to, I didn't ask to, but that's what I had to do. So I went to a lot of conferences and seminars about Satanism and the occult and tried to listen to what other people had to say with an open mind. I also began to understand, try to understand this repressed memory business. That was extremely controversial amongst mental health professionals because many people say the brain doesn't work that way. It's not a video camera where you lay all this stuff down and if you look at it more carefully, you can see everything that's there in the video. The brain doesn't work that way. And so I listened to this debate and had some feelings about it and so on. But I came to realize that from an investigative point of view, the most important thing was not the existence of repressed memory. Maybe there is such thing as repressed memory. Maybe there isn't. I also discovered to some extent, it depends on how you define it. What is a repressed memory? How is that different from a forgotten memory? And so on. And then what is a memory? There's implicit memory, explicit memory. And what do you mean by memory? So all this became very important. So I decided I'll leave it for others, although many mental health professionals have skepticism about the whole aspect of repressed memory. But what I did know with absolute certainty that the issue for me in law enforcement was the accuracy of recovered repressed memory. And from that, I learned very clearly that you have to carefully evaluate how the repressed memory was recovered and evaluate its accuracy. And eventually, I came to believe, and the American Psychiatric Association came to believe, there's only one way to determine the accuracy of a recovered repressed memory. And what is that one way? Independent corroboration. And that's what my job was all about, independent corroboration. So again, I tried to learn about all these things. I tried to go to all these conferences, and I discovered a lot of strange things going
0: on. Before you move on, Why at that time? So all of this, you said, started about 1983. Yes. Talk about satanic rituals and repressed memories. Why was that happening at that time? That's an
1: excellent question. Nobody actually knows the answer. I've talked to a lot of anthropologists and other stuff who talk about these panics and hysteria that goes on. Many people attributed to a book that was published in 1980 called Michelle Remembers, And I briefly discussed that in my book. It was written by a psychiatrist who was treating a college student and supposedly recovered her previously repressed memories of having been victimized in a satanic cult when she was four years of age. So that book came out. And then other things were going on. I just think that it was a series of coincidental factors that came together. Part of it had to do with we were coming out of centuries of denial about the sexual victimization of children, uh, that people didn't believe it, and all kinds of theories about why this was going on. So we went through a period where they were eliminating requirements for corroboration. People would repeatedly say things like, we must believe the children. Uh, Children don't lie about these kinds of things. If they have the details, it must be true. And we really didn't know a lot about how to properly interview people. And mental health people who did a lot of this interviewing Would use techniques that were maybe fine in the therapeutic world, but were problematic for investigative purposes, such as hypnosis, regression therapy, showing them cards, taking them back. So there was a lot of leading and suggestive questioning going on. Also, a lot of the ways to medically corroborate sexual abuse was not as precise as we would have liked or thought at the time. So I think there's many factors that came together as to why these allegations. But once it started it began to spread. And now some people have referred to it as a satanic panic. I don't like that phrase. I didn't really see any panic going on, but it did spread. And at that time also, there were a lot of conferences beginning to go on dealing with child abuse and people would come together and somebody would be on the program presenting on this topic and talking about a case. And then somebody else would go out and find a case. And it almost to some extent became a self-fulfilling prophecy that you started to look for it when you look for it. Matter of fact, somebody did a big research grant with the government and found that most of these cases were, were identified by the same small group of therapists who had all been trained. Now, they argued that's because they knew how to find it. Other people would suggest that there was some kind of leading and suggestive questioning going on. But for whatever reason, and I don't know for certain, just possibilities, somewhere in the early 1980s, these cases began to spread. And at that time, I just happened to be, by coincidence, in the right place at the right time to be a kind of clearinghouse because police came to the behavioral science unit primarily for those cases which were unusual and different. I'm not trying to minimize any type of sexual victimization of children, but if you had a case where some father or stepfather molested his daughter in the home, that's a terrible thing, but that's a case that police deal with and have some experience in dealing with. These kinds of cases as witness to call that I got were things that most police officers w- were in over the head and didn't really quite understand what was happening. I didn't understand at first. The only advantage that I had was I was able to see large numbers of cases and be able to look for patterns in these cases. So people would come to me, as I said earlier, and describe the only, one and only case they were aware of. I was aware of 30, 40 cases very similar. And so I realized in order to study this, I had to define it. I would get calls by reporters and they'd say, I'm doing a story about these cases. I'd say, what cases? These cases, what cases? Well, you like the McMartin case. Well, what's the McMartin case? Well, it's a daycare case. So you're doing a story about all daycare cases? Well, no, only those like weird ones. And you discovered that many of these people couldn't even define what it is that they were looking at. So most people didn't even have any criteria for what to look for. Now, because I was doing research, if I was going to research this problem, I had to precisely define what would make a case, quote unquote, one of these. And so I did that and started to to study these cases. One of the saddest things that I learned, however, is most people had a very simple definition of Satanism. It was any religion other than mine. And my first wake up call is when I went to a law enforcement conference and somebody stood up there and had a slide that said that Roman Catholicism, which I had been a member of all my life, was a form of witchcraft. And so you started to read these things. You had some of these things like the Church of Satan, the Temple of Set, and witchcraft, and occult, and all this stuff, paganism. But then you had even other things like heavy metal groups, rock music, the Klan, Nazis, skinheads. All of this stuff was being described as being satanic in nature, astrology, transcendental meditation, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, and the Roman Catholic Church that I was a member of. And so there were people who dabbled in the occult and Satanism, however you define that, but there was no real evidence that these people were part of some multi-generational, intergenerational, organized group that was engaging in this activity. And so I, the other thing that I found fascinating is I never got a call about satanic white-collar crime, satanic bank fraud and embezzlement, that Satanists seem to only get involved in two kinds of crimes. One was extreme violence, and the other was sexual perversion. So somehow these are unexplainable crimes that people don't understand the motivation for. So I think it's more likely to, for some people anyway, to turn to something like Satanism and so on. And so that began to be the focus of these cases arising out of allegations of extreme violence, mutilation of bodies, and other things. Matter of fact, one time we were teaching a class of some agents who were training to be sex crimes instructors. And after going through a lot of these sexual perversions, he came up on a break and said to me, he said, have you guys ever considered how people get involved in this stuff or why they have these sexual urges? And I said, well, you know, there's theories about it and the opinions about it. We've talked about a few of them, but that's not really the job of law enforcement to figure out how they got that, why they got that way, but how they commit their activity and what portion of it involves criminal activity. And then he looked at me with a straight face. He said, did you ever consider the possibility that these people are possessed by the devil? And I just kind of smiled and I said, I suppose that might be possible, but that's not really what I deal with. But I could understand why he felt that way. These kinds of things were so bizarre and strange that for some people, the explanation seems to be that the devil somehow made them do it.
0: Right, evil, evil personified. Some kind of evil, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so I,
1: after you know, I began to have my doubts, but I kept my mouth shut for a long time. I would just privately talk to people. I went out and talked to every expert that I could find, psychologists, sociologists, all kinds of people. And the people that I knew within the field of child sexual abuse that I was interacting with just kept telling me it's going
0: on the victims say it it's going on just got to find the evidence we got to prove it and so and some of the some of the allegations were that you know hundreds of children were being murdered hundreds of animals were being sacrificed that people were drinking blood that they were doing you know all kind of evil things and and what you're saying is in your study no one ever showed you the evidence. The skeletal remains.
1: What I tried to explain to people is my problem was not the lack of corroborative evidence. It was the lack of corroborative evidence when there should have been corroborative evidence. If some girl describes that at three o'clock in the morning, her father tippy-toed in her bedroom and fondled her vagina and left, and then she tells you that, well, what kind of corroborative evidence would you expect to find? there's not going to be a whole lot of corroborative evidence, particularly if it's had something that happened a long time ago and it was an isolated incident. But when somebody's describing multiple people doing these horrible things, blood, urine, body parts, feces, dead bodies, murders, all these multiple offenders, you simply cannot do all of that and never leave any corroborative evidence behind. So I just started to become skeptical about it and I started to also become extremely concerned because if this couldn't be explained, it was going to be devastating to the whole issue of child sexual abuse. It had been denied for thousands of years. And now just when we're starting to realize it and confront it and face it, now all of a sudden I'm going to be looking at this, we're going to be back to the idea that children can't be believed and so on children live in a fantasy world. So I felt it was extremely important to try to figure out what was going on here, even though it was not directly my job as an FBI agent, I, I just wanted to know. And so I just started looking into all these issues, mind control, brainwashing, what is all that all about, all these kinds of things, the lack of law enforcement training. And then when I did go to this law enforcement training, I realized how ridiculous some of it was. And that, you know, in one case, they'd shown a picture of a body that had two slash marks on the chest. And the guy's telling me, look, he carved an upside down cross in the chest. And I would say to myself, well, come to me. Let's take a journey and let's walk 180 degrees around the body and then look at the body. And now what do we see? The cross isn't upside down anymore. And what about the cases that I saw where somebody mutilated the body and tied a Bible to the body? What is that crime? And so what is the criteria to make a crime satanic in nature and so on? One guy told me that the reason I couldn't get the evidence is because I was looking for a horizontal conspiracy. I was trying to find the links between all these cases across the country and soon around the world. And I said, "Well, yeah, that's kind of one of the things I'm doing. He said, well, you're looking in the wrong place. I said, what should I be looking for? He said, it's a vertical conspiracy. I said, a vertical conspiracy? What's that? Well, all these different people around the country, they don't communicate with each other. They all communicate with the devil. And then the devil is behind it all. I just looked at them and I what am I supposed to do with that? So when you're talking about matters of faith and what people believe in the supernatural, what do you say if that's what somebody believes? I can't disprove that somebody was influenced by the devil and so on and so forth. And then they would all have all kinds of theories. Well, where are all these dead bodies from? Oh, they're abducted, missing children. Uh, they're runaway children, they're derelicts. And then when they weren't enough of those rotting around the numbers didn't support that, then they started claiming that the females in the group they have breeder women who get pregnant and have babies and don't record their births. And then they use those babies in these human sacrifices. And then they would talk about they had portable crematoriums uh, that they would burn up the bodies. And I'd say a portable crematorium. Do you know how big a crematorium would be? You don't just set a body on fire. If you're going to cremate a body, you have to have some pretty sophisticated kind of equipment. Then they talked about double-decker graves and on and on, and then they were using aborted fetuses and so on and so forth. The power of Satan made the bodies disappear and all this kind of stuff. But after about two, three years of talking to a lot of people and doing a lot of research and study, I just felt that a significant portion of what these victims were alleging just didn't happen. Now, here's something that's very important. These victims are not describing one's incident at one time on one day, and it's either all true or all false. Many of these victims are describing many, many incidents that occurred over a long period of time. So it's not a matter of it's all true or accurate, or it's all false and inaccurate. Some of what the victims could be describing maybe happened. Some of it was misperceived. Some of it was distorted. Some of it was misrepresented and so on. Now, people... Like the idea of the explanation that the offender had tricked the child. Uh, one child talked about walking through the wall. Well, you can't walk through walls. And then they found that one place where the activity supposedly took place was under construction and there were studs, but there was no drywall on the studs. So you could, I guess, in theory, walk through that wall. Another theory was that some of these things that they stuck into the children were suppositories and so on and so forth. So all those things were possible that the offender was tricking the kid into believing that. So everybody liked that explanation, but it didn't seem to explain all of this stuff or even most of it. The explanation that nobody liked was the possibility that this was caused by leading and suggestive questioning, or as I sometimes call it, overzealous interveners and so on. But I began to learn about possible alternative explanations. I'll just mention a couple of them. I'm not an expert in any of them. Some of them are distortions in traumatic memory. When people are traumatized, it plays tricks on their memory. Normal childhood fears and fantasies. Large numbers of children are afraid of the boogeyman under their bed. He doesn't exist either. Misperception, confusion, and trickery on the part of the perpetrator. Suggestions, misinterpretations, and assumptions. I discovered in many of these cases when you studied them very carefully, the child never really actually alleged some of these things It was the adult's interpretation of what the child was saying. A lot of it involved urban legends and shared mythology and things that people kind of believe, stories that they tell about kidnapping people for spare body parts or things like that when Ed Edna in the vacation movie dies and they strap it to the roof of the car, when the guy stops to get gas and hooks the dog to the bumper of the car and drags the dog down the road. A lot of these things are stories that are told and retold as if they're the truth, but they're not necessarily accurate. Some people talked about things such as sleep paralysis and dream experiences, or maybe some combination of all of those things. But I came to believe that it's not all or nothing. Some of what they're describing is true and accurate. Some is misperceived and distorted. Some is screened or symbolic. Some is contaminated or false. The great challenge for law enforcement then became Which is which? How do you tell the difference between all of these things? Also at this time, there was tremendous media attention about this. The 2020 series did a lot of programs about the uh, McMartin case and other cases. Geraldo Rivera did a famous two-hour special on satanic crime. Even Oprah Winfrey did several programs on the topic. 60 Minutes did a program on it and so on. So there are many materials out there with the media going into this and so on.
0: All of this is going on, and now you're starting to look at it and having some doubts. That had to be very controversial. And, and <laughs> how were you, you perceived? Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> why weren't you believing the children?
1: Exactly right. And what I discovered is that earlier on, uh, and also overlapping a little bit, I had spoken out about the exaggerations about abducted and missing children. And some people didn't like it, but it was no big deal. But when I spoke out about this, I realized it touched a nerve. And one of the things I realized, I would, the first thing I started to do was to present at different conferences on the topic and then hear my presentation. Somebody would come up at the end and say, well, why did you say such and such? I said, I never said that. Oh, yes, you did. I said, if somebody's got a tape, we'll play it. I never said that. Then they'll come and say, why didn't you say such and such? I said, I did say that. I mentioned that possibility that the child, the children were drugged or something like that. No, you didn't. You didn't say that. And I realized that these people didn't even listen to what I was saying. They believed what they wanted and need to believe. And that's what I began to discover how emotional this was. And finally, it grew to the point that people decided that Ken Lanning, the great champion of sexually abused children for five, six years had now turned to the dark side. He was now a non-believer and so on and so forth. And he doesn't believe the children. And people say, don't you believe the children? And I would get, at first, I was kind of embarrassed. and Oh, I do. I do believe. I do. I do. I do believe. And then I kind of smacked myself in the face and I said, it's not my job to believe. I'm an objective fact finder. It is my job to listen, assess, and evaluate, and attempt to corroborate. That's my job. And I'm not going to apologize anymore for not believing. I'm not going to apologize anymore for assessing and evaluating. I'm not going to apologize for considering alternative explanation. I'm not going to apologize for looking for corroborative evidence, which in my opinion is the greatest thing you can do for a victim is corroborate their case. But in any case, I just finally decided that I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And some people then accused me of being a Satanist who had somehow infiltrated the FBI. And I would laugh at that because when I was in the sixth grade, I had a wonderful nun who I was her favorite student. And she was convinced that I was going to become a priest. And I said, boy, Sister Evelyn would really be sad to find out I didn't become a priest. I became a Satanist to infiltrate the FBI. But nothing it was just totally ridiculous. And how do you prove the negative? How do you prove you're not something, which is a big thing that many people today also forget? How do you prove the negative? And you can't disprove that this is going on. It's the people who make the claim, make the allegation, have the burden of proof, not somebody who's trying to deny it. A lot of these things are hard to prove. And then at one time, there was a guy who went to a United States senator and wanted to have him have congressional hearings about me and my cover-up of satanic ritual abuse and all this stuff. So I just said, he can have all the hearings he wants. If the Bureau approves it, I'll go up there and testify. I've testified at many hearings, state commissions on this topic, and they all came to the same conclusion that I came to. Eventually, there were studies done in Michigan and Virginia by the National Center for Child Abuse and Neglect. Uh, in England, by the Utah Attorney General's office, and so on. And they all essentially used my material and then independently came to the same conclusions that I came to, that something was going on here, and there were many explanations for it, and we needed to find better ways to intervene in these cases and better ways to investigate these cases to try to get to the bottom of this. But I think some of the damage was lessened, but the damage is still there. So today, if someone is accused by multiple victims of having committed a sex crime, particularly children, and you say, well, how could it not be true? Multiple children say it. And the response is, haven't you heard of the McMartin case? Where hundreds of kids allege things that don't appear to have happened.
0: Yeah, that's a great segue. And I, I know that we you know, are talking in general, but there are so many people, we've mentioned the McMartin case several times now. Could we just take a moment to bring people up to date. If they're interested in learning more about the McMartin case, I'll have a link in the show notes where they can look at a New York Times documentary and article where you're quoted. Uh, And of course, there are so many other books and podcasts and shows about the McMartin case. But I do feel that for the people who are listening to us now, that I need to give them a little bit more information. I know it started in 1983 with an allegation and then just blew up. So could you give us just a, a little bit more about that? And then what happened at the end after yeah. after so many years of investigating and a, I think a three-year trial, how did it all end? Yeah, I'll talk about it in a
1: second. But one thing that people need to understand, and this is a sad reality, the discussion about these things, and this is another thing I talk about in my book, I have a whole chapter on it. I call it the witch hunt and the backlash and professionalism. That these topics, the discussion of these topics are dominated by the extremists, the all or nothing. Somebody who's alleging that it all happened just as the kid described, or it's part of a witch hunt by radical people and conservatives and religious fanatics and all kinds of stuff, and that none of them happen and all these people are totally innocent. And the hardest position to be in is in the middle where I was, where I was suggesting that some of what these victims allege may have happened or something like that happened, but just because all of it didn't happen. And and I sometimes I found a quote by Abraham Lincoln uh, who said? supposedly said, if both factions or neither shall abuse you, you will probably be right. Beware of being assailed by one and praised by the other. And so I realized that I was in the middle because I actually, in these books, have been blamed for both sides of this. I was blamed as being a Satanist who is preventing the uncovering of this. And in other published publications, I was blamed for creating the hysteria because I wrote an article about child sex rings and talked about these kinds of things that I was responsible for this satanic panic. So when both sides attacked me, I took it as maybe I'm doing something right. But in the McMartin case, it was one of the early cases, it's just simply the best known even, but, but today it's not known. It's sad to say how many people don't even know about it anymore. We have a memory of about five years as far as most people go back. But it's probably the most significant child sexual abuse case that I'm aware of in the last 50, 100 years. But most people don't even know about it. But it began in a daycare center in Manhattan Beach, uh, outside of Los Angeles in the suburbs. It was a longtime daycare center operated by a family. And one child began to make allegations uh, about being abused at the daycare center and some strange things that happened and so on. And to make a long story short, the police were called into it. Other allegations were made. And then a letter was sent home to parents asking to talk to their kids about certain things. And some people felt that that letter kind of spread the hysteria and planted thoughts in people's heads. Then the parents began to network with each other and talk to each other. But to make a long story short, pretty soon, there were hundreds of children. Now, in most jurisdictions, even one as large as Los Angeles, how long would it take to do a good quality forensic interview of 300 children? And you could say, I don't know, a month, six months, a year, And so what they discovered is depending on how much resources you can bring in, it may take you a long time. You interview one or two kids today, one or two kids the next day. And as you're doing that, a term that I hate, but I use it because I don't know of any word, the contamination or contagion spreads. The parents begin to network with each other. Did your little Johnny talk about the pink liquid? Oh, I don't know. Let me go ask him. Johnny, did they use a pink liquid? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did talk about it. And I'm not saying these parents are bad. I'm not saying that all these parents are the same and they all responded the same way they didn't. I'm not saying that this explains everything. But many complicated factors were going on. Also, an important thing that I wrote about and talked about is people didn't understand that there were different kinds of child abuse cases that needed to be investigated differently. And therefore, a one-on-one intrafamilial case is one kind of case, and we have procedures and protocols but it may very well be that those procedures and protocols don't very work very well in a many on many extrafamilial case. But in any case the allegations begin to grow, the children describe being moved through tunnels underneath the daycare center, being taken all over the Los Angeles metropolitan area where they were molested in bizarre rituals by famous people and celebrities and stars and then brought back to the daycare center. And I used to laugh at this because I was assigned to the L.A. office for three years. (laughs) And the general rule of thumb back then when agents used to carpool was that it got to be about three o'clock. You better start heading back to the office or you weren't going to make your carpool. (laughs) And so here's people supposedly out all over the city of Los Angeles at three, four in the afternoon. And somehow they always get back to the daycare center in time to get picked up by their parents with no signs that any of this weird stuff happened. So people started looking for these tunnels. There were experts who claimed that they found filled-in tunnels. I don't know what that means, but they couldn't explain how they got filled in. Originally, they were focusing on, although many, many people who worked there were accused, they had a core group of about six women and and one man who was the grandson of the owner. And they were the ones who were accused. Uh, Eventually, as the case went along, they dropped the charges against three or four of them, and they went forward with two of the women and the one man. And they were brought to trial, had a lengthy trial. The whole trial and everything was the most expensive trial at the time in the history of Los Angeles. It dragged on and so on and so forth. And then eventually they had a hung jury. They then dismissed the charges against the two women and just went against the one man. And then he had a second trial, which I believe also resulted in a hung jury. There's been several books written about this that try to analyze kind of what happened. There are some people who believe that something may have happened there, and we don't know for sure what it was, but I don't know of many people who can look at your straight face and say that 300 children were molested by everybody on the staff of this daycare center who built tunnels underneath the daycare center and all the rest of that stuff. I can understand how for 30 years you dug the tunnels. I don't understand how they filled them in one afternoon without anybody noticing all this kind of stuff. But nobody was ever convicted. And it just raised all kinds of complicated issues concerning how to interview children. Is there a difference between interviewing five-year-olds and, and 15-year-olds? Are the differences between intrafamilial and extrafamilial cases? So it was a case that had a tremendous impact on people who dealt with, and many changes were made concerning how these cases are investigated. But a lot of them, I don't think, really studied and understood the impact of this specific type case. So I've written a lot about it and tried to put a lot of material out there, including protocols for how to investigate these kinds of cases.
0: So basically, the belief is that the way the children were interviewed caused this these outrageous tales of human sacrifices and cannibalism and devil-worshipping that it was the emotional interviewing questions that caused all of this information to come forward and not the children's own memories.
1: Yeah. In other words, what amounts to, is the people who deal with this, some people will tell you that absolutely nothing happened at the McMartin Daycare Center, and the whole thing was what's commonly referred to as a witch hunt, that nothing happened. And all these people were falsely accused and nothing happened. And people are innocent in this country to proven guilty and no one was ever convicted. Other people say it all happened. It was bungled, there was problems and this. People didn't understand this part or that part. They overlooked this, that, and the other thing. And then there's some people who may suggest, which I think is plausible. There was a recent book where he discussed this, that maybe something happened to some of these children, but there's no evidence that all of it happened to all of the children, that a lot of these things is really no real evidence that it happened. And so they've offered alternatives. So somebody may have done some, and again, this is a sad thing that I went through when you're trying to de- describe these cases, when you're talking about satanic ritual abuse, and then you say, well, let's compare that to regular sexual abuse. <laughs> I never thought I'd use the term regular sexual abuse. And somehow that's a good kind of regular kind of thing. But you're trying to contrast the cases, the doc- well-documented cases that we're aware of. There were allegations that these offenders at the daycare center were producing child pornography. So I played a big part in trying to facilitate investigations into trying to find this pornography. If you could have found it, that would have been a tremendous piece of corroborative evidence. It was never found. And then these people would make all these explanations for why they, they didn't find it. and And so... I'd say, well, how come in these other cases we find it? We work so many cases where we search the guy's home three, five years later, and we find his pornography collection. Why in this case do we not find that? And so they just had all these explanations. But it is generally believed now that probably the most likely reason for how this got exaggerated is that some people didn't understand how to investigate these cases. They didn't understand that the role that parents play in a case like this and how do you Deal with that. How does the investigation deal with all of that? How many times do you interview a child? What constitutes leading and suggestive questioning? It's not simple because some children, if you don't ask some leading questions, they don't even say a word. So it's just a question of how you do this. So we've developed techniques. The FBI now has dozens of forensic interviewers that you can help the FBI in our cases and other cases. So a lot, of, a lot has been learned from the McMartin case as they go forward but it was just believed that through various factors, this case got exaggerated. But some people believe it all happened. Some people believe that none of it happened. And some of these articles that have been written about take one viewpoint or the other. The thing that's hard to find is people who take a more neutral, objective, careful, analytic view, and so on. Just to give you one example, there was a woman out there at the time, and I've been to conferences where this was disseminated, had a list of what she called the 29 indicators of preschool age children who were ritually abused by a satanic cult. And I'll just mention a couple of them here, five of them. Preoccupation with urine and feces, discussion of urine and feces, preoccupation with passing gas, fear of ghosts and monsters, nightmares. And this is supposed to tell you that a child was molested by a satanic cult. Most little kids, in my experience, are preoccupied by passing gas, and they have all kinds of slang terms for it, potty humor. The first thing they learn is about going to the bathroom and wee-wee and poo-poo and all this stuff. So this kind of stuff just goes to show you that many of the people who are involved in these kinds of investigations would just driven too much by emotion and the need to believe the children and the need to validate the allegation. Because a very important point comes up in these cases. If you don't believe everything the victim says, then what do you believe? What is your criteria for believing X, Y, and Z, but not A, B, and C? And that's the problem. Are you going to believe it all? You're going to believe none of it. And if you don't believe it all, then you have to develop some kind of a technique to sort through it and try to figure out what did or didn't happen. So later on, I tried to talk in conferences. I tried to write material. I published articles where I talked about this. I wrote an article about what I've just been talking about, what I call the witch hunt, the backlash, and professionalism. And the witch hunt, there's a chapter in my book about it as well, a more updated version of it where I talk about this extremism that tends to dominate the discourse. And as I look around the world today, I'm getting old, and I'm getting increasingly depressed at what I see happening because all of this phenomenon that I experienced in the mid to mid-80s mid to mid-90s with all these allegations of ritual abuse, in some ways in these other areas, it's just getting worse. It's just emotionalism and extremism. And and information is now being disseminated in ways that it couldn't be disseminated 10, 15 years ago, online, social media, and people looking at only one source of information and so on and so forth. And so I I just get depressed because I hear these things, people making comments about things that do not reflect what I learned about this particular type of case, which is why I'm talking about it. It was my experience with hundreds of these cases That taught me this, as you quoted there at the beginning. And then I realized there was no reason not to apply that to other kinds of cases and not to apply that to other areas where people are searching for the truth. And so now there's raging debate over fake news and which news is fake and what's an alternative fact and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And I just think that today there's just too many people who are influenced and overwhelmed by their own agendas and they've abandoned objectivity and professionalism. Now, for certain people, that's just slightly unfortunate. Private people can decide whatever they want for whatever reason. But when I see investigators, journalists, mental health professionals, healthcare professionals going down this road, it's just really depressing. And the other thing that people don't understand from the research, most abducted children, even by non-family members, and even some of the long-term abductions, these children are not murdered within three hours, as many people believe.
0: Yeah, I've heard that many times. Yeah, the majority. of them.
1: Now, in the whole spectrum of abducted children, about 99% of abducted children are returned relatively unharmed a short time later. And even in the long-term abductions where the kids might be more likely to be reported missing, even there, the latest research shows that a significant percentage, I don't remember the number, somewhere around 60% of those children are not severely harmed. A lot of that is due to the fact that surveillance cameras all over the place today and so on and so forth. But it's a lot of the confusion is because people don't want to define their terms. And the terms missing and abducted have almost become synonymous, but they're not. And I discovered that lumping things together, such as satanic ritual abuse, such as missing children... Putting this problem lumping together, what if we said we're going to do a study to find out study sick children? Well, sick children, we can't just lump them all together. What kind of sickness the cold, the flu, cancer, what mental illness? what kind of sickness are you talking about? So many of these things have to be separated if we're going to find solutions, but everybody likes to lump them all together to make impact and what I discovered with children, when you want numbers and concern a child is anyone under the age of 18. But if you want impact, I'm not going to show you the picture of some 17-year-old girl. I'm going to show you the picture of some seven-year-old girl. And that's what caused you to weep and cry and you get response. So society tends to want to deal with these emotional kind of issues in an emotional way. And unfortunately, that leads to a lot of confusion. A lot of the laws that we have today to deal with these problems, such as Megan's law and Jessica's law and the Adam Walsh Act, focus on cases in which children were abducted sexually assaulted and murdered that's a terrible horrible thing but most children who are sexually victimized are not abducted and most children who are abducted are not murdered so why do we take the worst kind of scenario pass a law to, to uh, uh, some criteria to deal with that kind of an offender and then apply it to all cases and a lot of it is just emotionalism and the other thing that i've learned <laughs> is this emotionalism that i'm talking about has its advantages. And one advantage of this kind of emotionalism, this is how you, is how you get legislation passed. <laughs> you talk about the extreme, atypical, outrageous case, and then that's how you get some legislation passed. But very often, the legislation is then not the best legislation. I was involved in a TV program. They had a debate with a state senator about the requirement to put green license plates on the cars of sexual predators. So I said, Well, I, I don't know. I have some concerns about that. I said, What's your definition of a sexual predator? Once again, couldn't give me really a precise definition that the law would require. And then, what if you do if you put the license plate on the car? What if his wife wants to drive the car? She can't drive that car. And then, what do we tell kids? For years, we've told kids, Don't take rides from strangers. Now, do we change it? Don't take rides from a stranger with a green license plate? So the whole thing. Is almost like feel-good legislation. Then as soon as he told me that the law was named after some girl who was a victim, and you say, I lose. I might as well just go home. <laughs> it's because when you have an argument that involves emotion, emotion almost always wins the day. And that's the way it is. But anyway, I tried to write my book, and based on my experience with these cases, and in my book, I talk about what I learned about the sexual victimization of children and apply it to those kinds of cases including cases today that we hear more and more about, kids not molested by a satanic cult, but molested by their teacher, their scout leader, their parish priest, a minister, their next door neighbor, and people like that, and these nice guy offenders and what those cases are all about. So I talk about those kinds of cases that kind of get lost in the shuffle. It's really easy to talk about you know, the simplicity. Nothing is more black and white than Good, loving, caring little children and evil devil worshippers, but again that 's not the reality of the vast majority of these cases. So I talk about that, and then in the book, I, in the later chapters, I try to talk about how some of this could be applied or not although not easily, to the current situation of trying to assess information that's floating around. It's very difficult to get to the bottom of this stuff because many people make it difficult for anybody to learn to get detailed, reliable information. The last thing I'll say and I'll stop here for a minute is that people asked me when I retired from the FBI, did I feel bad, that I wish I was still in the FBI. And I said, well, I loved my FBI career. I loved what I did. It was fantastic. And there are things that I miss. I, I don't miss some of the administrative kind of BS and other kinds of things. But the thing that I miss more than anything else is the day I retired, I lost my access to detailed and reliable information. And that's what I was able to get in my position at the behavioral science unit, detailed and reliable information. And unfortunately, when you're a layperson like I am now, where do I find out what's going on in a specific case? Where do I get those kind of details from? And It's not easy. And what I recommend in my book, the only thing I can do is to diversify my sources of information mm, look at exactly. as many different sources as you can watch msnbc and fox and nbc and cbs and read this paper and that paper and look on the internet
0: i have an example of that you know because uh, of my podcast and of my you know the books that i'm writing I frequently, and I'm saying several times a month, get contacted by cable news media, you know, asking me if I will become a commentator for different news shows. And I always tell them no because of what you just said. I don't have the facts. So if you want me to comment on a police shooting or a bombing or, you know, a mass shooting, I don't have the facts. Only thing that I'm telling you is my opinion. Now I know there are FBI agents who are commenting and I think many of them (laughs) do a good job of trying to do some research. You know, they're they're reading everything they can on the different subjects. I don't have time for that. You know, I were to comment, you're gonna basically get my opinion. And I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to participate. And I was
1: contacted by one national program and wanted me to participate in one of these panels. And I said, I just don't have the time to do that or the interest in doing it. I watch your program. I see these panels on there and they just speculate about all this stuff. I just don't have any interest in it. And they said, well, that's what our program's about. We bring these experts in and they speculate. <laughs> well, I said, that to me is a total waste of time. Because yeah. the thing, you, you watch the program and for an hour, they're speculating over the meaning of why the offender left semen at the crime scene. And then you find out six months later, there was no semen at the crime scene. So you just wasted all that time speculating about something that's not a documented fact. Or why the guy was driving in a white truck with ladders on the top of it when he was driving in a dark sedan that had no ladders on it. Right. So a lot of this stuff, people just speculate. And, that, and I said, listen, you have every right to do that. That's allowed in this country. If you want to do it, fine. I don't like to do it. And what bothers me, however, is the number of people who watch that speculation and then just tend to filter through it and take that which they like and agree with, and then it moves from their speculation to fact. And that's what people are doing, disseminating inaccurate information. And the problem, one of the things I talk about in my article about the witch hunt and the backlash is that all, all people do it. And the more extreme your views are, the more likely it is that you do it. But the sad fact is each opposite extreme wants to blame and point out when the other side does it, but seem to believe that they
0: don't. That's fascinating. (laughs) And I think that's what I uh, really enjoyed reading in your book is calling out people for that. Each side is pointing fingers. And as you said, the, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. And if you take the time to look at all of the information and evaluate everything that's coming in looking for facts like there's a lot of things and i tr- try never to get political but there's a lot of claims that are people are making when there are actual reports that have been made from our intelligence community that you can actually read and get your information. Now, if you don't believe in the in- integrity and accuracy of the intelligence community, then I have to throw my hands up in, 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 in that area. There's nothing I can say. But I think at least reading those reports would be much better than, you know, watching a cable news program or, worse yet, looking at tweets.
1: Yeah, but you, these people, when you kind of ask them, well, what is that based on? Where did you get that information from? it is very rarely some credible kind of sauce. One that I talk about in my book that I've seen over and over again, according to the FBI, one in four females will be molested before the age of 18.
0: Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that one.
1: Yeah, I said, well, where does that come from? I said, I was in the FBI for 30 years. I don't know of any FBI research that says that. Maybe it might be true, I guess. But once again, how you define molestation? Is it any time between birth and 18? How many of those events occurred when they were 16 or 17 versus when they were two or three? All of those things are kind of lost in when they lump all this stuff together to make these emotional claims. So it's just really hard. But in my book, I tried as best I could to make some suggestions to people on how to uh, look at information, diversify their sources of information, to look at more information and so on.
0: Let me ask you a question, because yeah. one, of the, one of the things that I do on the podcast, as a matter of fact, it was my initial mission, was to talk about cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and books, TV and movies. And you, t- and you tell a story in your book about being on the Larry King show, <laughs> and how that morphed into you being mentioned both on X-Files and on Criminal Minds. And it's right. such a great story. I'd love for you to tell that here.
1: Yeah. What happened to me is that one, a couple of things happened. One of the things that I did when I realized, well, I, after three years, said, I've got to speak up. I just can't keep my mouth shut. So I tried to do presentations, but you can only read so many people's so presentations. So I said, I have to do some published writing. So I wrote a book. It's a monograph. And uh, I got it printed at the government printing office through the FBI headquarters called Investigators' Guide to Allegations of Ritual Child Abuse. And it said, investigator's guide. And it was just a summary of what I had learned, suggestions for how investigators should investigate these cases. And one of them was not throw it in the garbage can and ignore it. Many people said I was a part of some cover-up. I never told anybody, don't look into it. I said, look into it, but consider alternative explanations as you're doing that. So that went out there. The FBI sent it out. I gave it out for free. Then pretty soon it was online. And it was everywhere online. You used to be able to download it from this place or that place. People say, well, why did you allow it? Some satanic group is putting it out there. I said, I have no way to stop it. It's the work of a government employee on government time. It's not even copyrightable. And I said, all I can hope is that they publish it in its entirety. But later on, it came to be called the Lanning Report. And people would refer to it as an FBI report or the Lanning Report it's a training monograph. It's not a report in the sense of the FBI writing an investigative report. It's not the Lanning report and so on. We're out there. So on an episode of uh, uh, Criminal Minds, they're talking about a case. They have somebody. Here's the interesting thing. This is a story of somebody who I think was one of the victims in the McMartin case, now grows up, and it's now like 20, 30 years later to bring it into the current time, and he's doing something I can't remember because I can't watch the show because it's so inaccurate. I just laugh. But in any case, he's on there. And then the, they have the agents talking. And then they're saying to each other, Yeah, that's what we used to think until the landing report came out. <laughs> so the next day, my sister, who lives in upstate New York, calls me up and she said, I was watching Criminal Minds last night. And they were talking about some landing report. Is that you? And I said, Well, I'll watch the episode. So I found the episode and I watched it. I said, Yeah, but it's that monograph that I wrote. Then I was also on the Larry King show because they wanted me to go on there and talk about these allegations of satanic ritual abuse. And I said, well, who's going to be on the program? So we're going to have an adult survivor and some other people. And I said, no, I'm not going on. So why not? I said, I don't debate victims. She said, well, I thought you were skeptical about this. I said, I may be skeptical about all the details of what she's describing, but this woman has something happened to her. I don't know exactly what it was, but she's a troubled soul. And it's inappropriate for me as a professional to to uh, to be debating her. That's just not right, and I'm not going to participate in it. So she calls me back a couple hours later and says, "We're going to separate it. She's going to come on, tell her story, and then she'll leave, and then you'll be on with the with the psychologist and the psychiatrist to talk about all this other kind of stuff." So I talked about it and so on and so forth. And then later on, what happens is uh, these was that the X-Files comes out. And so the X-Files is on where these FBI agents are investigating all this supernatural stuff. So some of the agents that had retired went out and met with the guy who wrote the show. I can't remember his name now. So they went with him. And so they said to him, where did you ever get the idea for the X-Files? And he said, well, one night I was watching the Larry King show and there was an FBI agent on there and he was talking about these allegations of satanic ritual abuse and how the fact that they couldn't find any evidence that it was going on. So he says to me, were you ever on the Larry King show? And I said, yes, I was. He said, what were you talking about? He said, well, satanic ritual abuse. He said, well, then you're the one. That's one. He saw that episode and that turned into the X-Files. Well, you so, should get producer credit, I guess. Well, I don't want any credit. Because, <laughs> because the thing about it that sad to me is I have no problem with fiction and putting fiction out there. What bothers me is the number of people who go to the FBI headquarters and want to see where the X-Files are, that people believe that what they're watching on that program is real. (laughs) That's the sad part about it. But in any case, if somebody wants to do a fiction show on it, that's fine. But what is ironic to me was that my efforts to try to disseminate objective and accurate information about the true nature of this problem resulted in a TV program that many people... It's not the fault of the guy who put it on the TV program. Many people now accept as some kind of documentary fact. And so all of a sudden, it's just spreading this kind of concern about these supernatural kinds of things. And so my efforts to try to bring some objectivity to it all and and so on resulted in another show that just continues to perpetuate that kind of stuff. So they did a couple of episodes about it. And they actually, on the program, they have one of the characters cite a line right right out of one of my publications.
0: Yeah, you're you're really famous. <laughs> <laughs> famous for
1: all the wrong things.
0: <laughs> well, like I said, that's one of the things that I'm doing now, and so my my next book that's coming out is called FBI Myths and Misconceptions: A Manual for Armchair Detectives. And I go through many of those cliches and misconceptions about the FBI in books and TV and movies. And I know that you have a section in your book where you do that too, Uh, not necessarily misconceptions about the FBI, but just cliches that are out there in the world that people believe.
1: Just to interrupt for a second, I also talk about misconceptions as they pertain to the sexual victimization of children and also about the unit that I worked in. I used to say to people, I'm gonna come here. I said, I'm Ken Lanning. I was in the behavioral science unit longer than any other agent was, 20 years. I said, they changed the name of it, but as a century for me, it was the same unit. So I can come here and I tell you I'm Ken Lanning from the Behavioral Science Unit. So the advantage of that is you have some idea of who I am and so on. The disadvantage is now you have a totally distorted perception of what I do because you've been watching all these TV programs and movies and all this stuff. So it misrepresents the work. And the biggest thing I mentioned earlier is the fact that in the behavioral science, Unit, at least when I was there, we were involved in consulting on these cases, not investigating these cases. And that's an important distinction. I could have never investigated 500 cases of satanic ritual abuse but i consulted on hundreds and hundreds of these cases and so there's advantages and disadvantages each but i also tried to talk about some of the cliches and distortions that i've heard over and over again that specifically relate to victimization of children and they also relate to things that i see now as part of what i talk about in the later part of my book about people making statements to justify their position and they're statements that sound like they're true and support their argument, but these are statements that are not true. They appear to be true, but they aren't. <laughs> and so I just thought I picked out about 10 of the ones that just kind of stuck in my head and just stuck them in my book.
0: Well, we'll make everybody get the book to read what those are. <laughs> yeah. And
1: what I did with each of them, I listed each of them. And then down below, I referenced the chapters where I talked about or explained you know, why they aren't accurate and okay. so on. But and yeah, one, of the, one of the things I got involved in all of this, I, I tried to, and the reason I wrote this book is I tried to figure out why did I go to all these people who were smarter than I was, better educated than I was, knew more than I did, and yet they couldn't see something that I could see so clearly. And what about me was different? Why could I see it and they couldn't see it? And that's when I came to this realization of this confirmation bias and how people come to form their opinions. And it's very often based on distorted, inaccurate, and erroneous information that they just want to believe.
0: And that's what I found so fascinating about the book and why I got more and more excited about it as I was reading, because I'm thinking I'm going to read a book about child molesters. And really, it was a mind-opening look at bias and opinions And, you know, where we get our information.
1: Let me let me just tell you something that was very important to me that most people don't have. That I am as susceptible as anybody to watch these programs. I have personal biases. And a lot of times there's people on television who say things and it's what I want to hear or believe. And I just find myself tending to believe it. But what happened to me is the FBI allowed me and then I continued to do it after I retired to become an expert in the sexual victimization of children. I've been studying this problem for over 45 years. And even if I'm just of average intelligence, after 45 years of studying the same things, research, training, actual cases, you just learn a certain amount about it. So I know a great deal about child sexual abuse. I don't know a great deal about a lot of other things. I know varying amounts, but I know a phenomenal amount about sexual victimization of children. And what that means, and what I noticed when I'm on television, I would hear people talking about, discussing the topic. Many of them presented as mental health professionals, experts, psychiatrists, psychologists, child abuse experts, and so on, coming on these different programs. And I'll listen to them, and I'll be able to say some portion, maybe not all, but a big portion of what they're alleging is simply inaccurate. It's distorted. They're misrepresenting the research, and so on and so forth. And the only reason I know that is because. I know this topic, but most people don't have something like that. They didn't spend 45 years studying. Maybe some car mechanic can listen to a show about fixing cars and know the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But I listened to so many shows and I just recognized that if these experts that I clearly know are not accurately stating the situation and the data and the research are doing that in this area, why on this other program about a topic that I know very little about, what reason do I have to believe that it's not going on there? So I've just become increasingly skeptical. And what I freely admitted when I would talk about this to interdisciplinary groups, I said, I come from a law enforcement bias, and I'll admit that bias. And the law enforcement bias tells me, unless I know otherwise, I assume people are lying. Because I had mental health professionals tell me that unless they know otherwise, they assume everybody's telling the truth. And I, I don't know how many times I hear this statement over and over again, why would they lie about this? And just people are just ignorant about all the reasons that somebody might lie. And also the fact that very often they are not lying, but what they're saying is not accurate. If a lie is a malicious, deliberate intent to deceive, that's one thing. But many people truly believe what they're saying, but that doesn't mean it happened and it doesn't mean it's an accurate account of what happened.
0: Well, I'm not going to let you get away without putting you on the hot seat. Okay. 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 So, you know, you talked about why would they lie? And of course, in today's world, there are allegations of, of sexual misconduct and, and people wondering, who do you believe? Do you believe the accuser? Do you believe the accused? So what do you, how do you answer that? The way I answer that is this way. There's no simple thing. First of all,
1: the average person has no ability to get to the bottom of these things. So I watched the hearings on the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh, and I listened to all of that stuff. Now, as I said earlier, I don't have access to what I could have had access to maybe when I was an FBI agent. Now I'm just like everybody else. So you just try to listen to what's available. But there are many possible reasons why somebody may allege something. But the most important thing is the amount of evidence you need to come to believe something or accept something is dependent upon the consequences of you believing. So, to give you an example, my wife became obsessed with the John Binet Ramsey case. And every time we went to the supermarket, she bought another tabloid. Every book she could find, she bought it. She watched all the TV programs. And of course, when I was in the behavioral science unit, I was involved in the consultations on the case. But I never discussed them with my wife. And she would tell me all her theories about who did it and how it happened. And she talked about her, her umbrella of suspicion and all this stuff. Now, if she had come to the conclusion one day that John Benet Ramsey was murdered by aliens from outer space. Who cares? <laughs> there's no, there's no consequences to her believing that. So she can believe it and she can tell her friends, but there's no real consequence. If the police say we're closing our case because they would think there were aliens and they went back on this spaceship and went back to outer space, there's consequences for that. So here, like with some of these kinds of things, when these people come forward, what are the consequences to believing? And so the greater the consequences, the more you have to have reliable and detailed and accurate information to defend whatever conclusion you've come to. But what I frequently say in these cases, what we alluded to earlier, it's not my job to believe, even when I was in the FBI, it's my job is to listen. Listen to what this victim is alleging happened. Assess it and evaluate it and attempt to corroborate it to whatever extent you can.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. We're we're almost coming to the end, but I do want, uh, you know, most of the people who listen to this podcast listen to many true crime shows. And I think for them, uh, one of the things that will give you credit is that you were able to interview John Wayne Gacy. And the other thing is that you actually trained Jim Clemente, who has the Real Crime Profile, the very popular Real Crime Profile podcast. I've actually interviewed him on this show, uh, episode 59. So that will give you extra credit as, <laughs> a, as an expert. Yeah. I mean,
1: Jim quite often cites my research and he came. I met him early on before he became an agent. And then he came into the bureau and then he worked different things. And I worked with him on a lot of things. And then he eventually came into the unit. He came in to understudy me particularly in the cases involving online exploitation of children. Those cases were growing and growing. I, when I started to do this in the behavioral science unit, I was doing it all by myself. Some people would say to me, well, when you left the FBI, who replaced you? And I'd say, well, I have the distinction that I was replaced not by an agent. I was replaced by an entire unit And when I left, they created the Behavioral Analysis Unit 3, Crimes Against Children. I couldn't keep up with the cases anymore. There were so many of them now. So they brought in uh, Jim and another agent, Jennifer Aiken, who's at the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. She's now retired. And they became my understudy. But Jim is an attorney, very knowledgeable, has a lot of experience and so on. And so he has his own knowledge and everything like that. But he uses a lot of my typologies that I developed and a lot of the material that's in my publications. Uh, He used it and so on. And then, you know, I interviewed several of these guys in prison, but I don't like to talk about it that much. The only reason that I talked about him and one other in my book is because both of the individuals I interviewed were dead. They were executed <laughs> by the state. But the only reason is that when we interviewed these people, we were doing research. And many of them, we either stated or implied that no one would know that they were interviewed. It was part of a broad, in- that what you tell us will be dumped in. And we say, we interviewed 50 serial killers and this is what they told us. So I don't feel comfortable revealing it. I also don't feel comfortable revealing information that I learned at case consultations at Quantico or wherever, where a department and prosecutor came back and we spent days and days talking about a case, giving them advice, then necessarily I write a book and put all that stuff in a book and act like I'm the one who solved the case. So they gave us that information in confidentiality, and I don't feel comfortable going into any great detail about what they told us.
0: You know, this has been a fascinating discussion. What's the the main takeaway that you would like everyone to have after listening to this episode?
1: Yeah, that's tough to summarize all this stuff. I would say the main takeaway is to recognize that we all have these needs and biases. And depending on how important the decision that you're about to make is, we need to consider and at least try as best we can. And I fully recognize it's not easy to do to educate yourself to whatever extent you can about issues that are important. And so I would say that maybe the last thing to summarize it more shortly is when you hear all this stuff on television, on the news, just say to yourself, does the person alleging that have a possible bias? And just Consider that as you're evaluating the information. But what you need to do is consider it equally across the board. When you're getting information and say, oh, this person, I think, has a significant bias. Therefore, I'm going to give less weight to what they're saying. And so, just something to consider.
0: And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Ken Lanning and a longer bio. You'll also find several newspaper articles about the controversial reporting of the satanic ritual abuse of children. There's also a number of reports written by Ken Lanning for you to look at. And of course, there's a direct link to his book, Love, Bombs, and Molesters, An FBI Agent's Journey. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or anywhere you listen to audio. This podcast is where I talk about true crime. But if you also enjoy watching crime dramas and reading crime fiction, then you want to join my reader team. When you do, you'll get a copy of my FBI reading resource, which is a list of all the books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have been on this podcast. Ken Lanning's book, Love, Bombs, and Molesters is there, as well as 50 other true crime memoirs and crime novels. Soon, you'll be able to pick up a copy of my first nonfiction book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. Coming soon to all stores where books are sold. It's a 55,000 word expanded version of my popular FBI reality checklist. If you enjoy police procedurals, I hope you also consider picking up copies of the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. The crime fiction series features Special Agent Carrie Wheeler, Temptation, Corruption, and Redemption. The books are available as ebooks and paperbacks at Amazon.com, and Pay to Play is also an audiobook. I want to thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.